These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land that was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living creature. Or perhaps not. Scientists now tell us that this is not the way it happened at all. That instead, it happened a very different way. In fact, we are told by scientists that, well, maybe, there it comes, 13.7 billion years ago, infinitely dense, infinitely small amount of matter exploded across the vacuum of space. And approximately 4.6 billion years ago, a solid homogeneous mass formed of the Earth, which cooled down about 3.8 billion years ago. About 3.5 billion years ago, life appeared on that planet and evolution began. And those single-celled organisms evolved into multi-celled organisms that later evolved through the generations and developed into all manner of animals and species and humans that we see all over the face of the earth. 450 million years ago, fish formed. 250 million years ago, reptiles formed. 200 million years ago, mammals formed. About 1.6 million years, excuse me, 20 million years ago, hominids formed. Getting ahead of myself. 1.6, I really am getting ahead of myself. Let me just look at the list. 4 million years ago, the Australopithecines formed. Now we have 1.6 million years ago. Homo erectus walked the face of the earth. About 200,000 years ago, Neanderthal man was evolved. And then about 50,000 years ago, man, as we know him today, modern man, was evolved and on the face of the earth. These are our choices. Is man the crowning achievement of God's creation week? Or are we merely the latest accidental occurrence in the blind process of progressive change? I have a little bit of a problem. I'm a preacher. I'm not a scientist. I admit that. When I start hearing scientists talk, my brain starts to shut down. My eyes start to glaze over. They talk about things that I don't know. They use words that I don't know. They talk about facts that I have to take on faith that they're being honest. They talk about events and things that occurred that, that I have a hard time remembering. And so for me, I have to try to keep it just very simple. I know that these arguments, and as we look at this, can become very complex. But for me, I just try to keep it very simple. And I just ask the question, is there really evidence that man got here by evolving over millions of years from the very first life form. Do we really have that? We're told by the scientists that we do. We're told that there's evidence of this everywhere. But is there really evidence that says life got here and species formed because they evolved from one another? That's what I'd like to talk about for just a few moments, uh, maybe a longer few than usual, as Rusty tried to point out. But... Uh, I want us to talk about this for a few moments this morning. Some of you who were here about four years ago will remember this sermon. I've been asked to preach it again as we just deal with some of the questions that have come up here in the last few months. 
And so if you were here four years ago, I hope you forgot. No, no, I don't hope you've forgotten this, but I hope this is a reminder for you. Uh, but as I look out, we've got a lot of new folks too, and so I hope this is a blessing in your life as we try to take a look at Scripture, uh, science, the world. We're going to be answering all kinds of questions. Before we look at that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God, we love you so much because we know that you are the ruler of the universe. We know that the universe is here because of you. We pray that you would help us to understand how you've done that. Help us to understand your revelation. Help us to understand your word. Help us to understand your world. Help us to have minds that are open to truth, understanding that truth has nothing to fear. And help us, Father, no matter what side we take on any of these questions, to to have open hearts and minds to discuss with one another so that we can help each other glorify and serve you. Father, we thank you so much for your love. And we thank you for your son who died for us. And we pray that we can surrender to everything that he has said in our lives, that we can glorify and honor you as the supreme ruler of the universe. Father, help us to make you Lord in our lives and not ourselves. Unto your name be the glory and not unto ours. Father, we love you so much and we thank you for loving us. Through your son's name we pray. Amen. The first thing that I want us to note here is the difference between the real world and science. The real world is what is out there. I mean, there is a real world. There are things that go on, and the real world is governed by laws, and some of these laws we know about, probably some of them we don't know about yet. There are things that happen, and that's, that's the way the world is made to happen. Science is not the real world. Science, which comes from the Latin word meaning knowledge, is actually our assessment of the real world. As men observe and experiment and take a look at the real world, science is what man says about the real world. And the thing that we need to understand about science is that science is not always right. There are some things that are taught as science that through further observation and through further experimentation we realize is not true. For instance, for a long time, science said, as it observed the world, life comes from non-life. Everybody had seen it happen. They'd lay out a piece of meat, and a few days later, there'd be flies flying off of it. And they all knew that through observation and experimentation, that life comes from the non-living. Until, in the 1860s, Louis Pasteur conducted a little bit better experiment, and we learned via observation that actually life does not come from non-life. Uh, abiogenesis, as it's called, does not happen. Of course, since then, we'll just say as an aside, many scientists have been trying to prove that Louis Pasteur was wrong at least once because for uh, the atheist system to take place, life had to come from non-life at least once. By the way, that has never been proven. I know you'll hear about tests in the 50s, but scientists have said that the guy who did those tests didn't have the right uh, atmospheric conditions. They've changed all that since then. And in addition to that, all he produced was some amino acids. He did not produce life. As much as folks, oh, building blocks of life, building blocks of life. No, yes, building blocks, maybe, not life. And we need to understand that. So science now says that life does not come from non-life. But it used to say that it did. The thing that we need to understand is that science is wrong sometimes because science does not equal the real world. We're talking about the origin of man. We need to recognize that science changes as it talks about the origin of man. Uh, Jeremy De Silva, Jerry De Silva, Life Science Interpretation Coordinator of the Boston Museum of Science, demonstrates this point by saying, since Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species in 1859, paleoanthropologists have been searching for fossil evidence of our past 
and fiercely debating hypotheses for human ancestry. Many popular ideas have come and gone, and some of the most enthusiastically endorsed hypotheses have withered in light of new evidence. Just this year, two newly discovered fossil hominids have forced paleoanthropologists to reanalyze the evolution of bipedalism in our ancestors. Of course, that's written several years ago. But we still see the same point. Science told us, here's how man got here. And then science said, nope, sorry, we're wrong. We found different fossils that tell us a different story. And so we were all wrong when we told you before how man got here. The real world truth is out there. It really is. But the thing we need to understand is that science changes. They're telling us, oh, we've got all the facts, we know how it happened, and that's what they want us to believe, but they're actually changing it pretty frequently. We need to keep that in mind. Now, uh, let's be honest about this. Really, the way I kind of see this is it's a lot like our own personal Bible study. Have you ever read a passage and you were absolutely convinced, oh, I know what that passage means, and then you come back and you read it later and you decide, oh, I was wrong before, now I understand what it means. Anybody ever had that happen? Yeah, I mean, we have that happen all the time. And that's what science is doing. But science is doing it with the world. They're examining and they're saying, this is the way it is, and then they come back and say, no, what, we're wrong. We think maybe this is the way it is. But we need to understand that that's changing. It's changing all the time. But as scientists are studying the world, they are actually approaching it with a debilitating preconception. They are actually studying it with a prejudice and a bias that causes them not to see God. And sadly enough, even some Christian scientists follow with the same prejudice and bias. I'd like to demonstrate it by this quote from Encyclopedia Britannica. It says that science is, on the simplest level, knowledge of the world of nature. But it goes on later and describes it even more in detail. It says science, then, is to be considered in this article. Yeah, make sure I get it up there. Science, then, is to be considered in this article as knowledge of natural regularities that is subjected to some degree of skeptical rigor and explained by rational causes. Now, I need to point out two words in this, because if you don't see these words and understand what is meant by these words, you misunderstand what's being said here. You notice natural regularities, rational causes. It's the study of natural regularities, and that's supposed to mean in contrast to supernatural regularities. Explained by rational causes, and the idea of rational means instead of philosophical, theological, or spiritual causes. See, when we just hear this definition, we might think, oh, that makes a lot of sense to me. But the problem is these words are loaded with meaning. When it talks about natural regularities, it means we're only going to study things that have a natural beginning. Anything that we think about must be described naturally. We're not allowed to describe it supernaturally. And it has to have a rational cause. It cannot have a personal cause or a theological cause or a spiritual cause. We're not allowed to see that. In fact, there are some scientists that will say, look, I'm not saying there isn't a God. I'm just saying as we study the natural world, we're not allowed to jump to that conclusion of, oh, God did this. We've got to look at it from natural causes. The thing that I want us to see here is that when this is the definition of science, already we've removed God from the picture. 
already they've said God can't possibly have been the cause. We are by definition looking for natural causes, with natural regularities, with rational causes. We cannot have a theological or spiritual cause, and so we're just not allowed to go there. Here's the thing that I want us to recognize from this. If this is going to be our definition, then we come up with evolution not because the evidence has said evolution, but because we've, before we've even looked at the evidence, we've decided it can't possibly say God. I understand that not all scientists work this way, but we need to understand what this definition means. This definition means that no matter what we see, we're not allowed to see God. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Romans 1, 18-20 says, The world shows us God. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Some of us, as we look at the heavens, as we look at the skies, and we see the stars spread across our galaxy, and the great design of a galaxy that, in which our sun is spinning and revolving in that galaxy and our earth is revolving around that sun and the moon is revolving around the earth and it's doing it with such precision that we can shoot a rocket from the earth and land it on the moon because we know exactly where it's going to be. And we look at that and we see a grand designer. We look at something as small and intricate as the human cell or even the nucleus within a cell and we see the detail there and we can't help but see an intricate detailer. But that's the one thing that many scientists are not allowed to see. It's not that they look and don't see it, it's that they're not allowed. They start with a preconception. Not allowed to see God in this, so I have to come up with some other answer. So Hebrews 3 and verse 4 says, Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And I'm not sure that this definition is as scientific as it really wants to be. Because what it does is it looks at the universe that does have the potential of having been built by someone in much the same way that somebody might come and look at this building and say, how did it get here? And they start off with the preconception, the one thing that can't possibly happen is somebody built it. We cannot, no matter what we look at in this building, we cannot say that there was an intelligence that designed it. And that's the way many scientists look at the world and the universe. They start with that. They don't conclude with that. They start with that. And that is circular reasoning. We need to understand there is a difference between the real world and science. Now, if we talk about the origin of species, 
how did all the species get here? Please pay very close attention to what we're about to say on this because I think this is one of the most important things that we need to understand in this discussion back and forth. Evolution, we're told, in the broadest sense, means change. But the theory of evolution is more than just change. Evolution is the process by which organisms change from generation to generation, producing forms that are adapted to changes in the environment and eventually give rise to new species. I want you to hone in on that last, those last two words. Eventually give rise to new species. We're told that the only scientifically tenable explanation for both biological diversity and order is the theory of evolution. Now understand, the only scientifically tenable theory. Now someone who writes that, they might say, now there's another theologically tenable, but we're talking about science. If we're just going to stick with science, the only scientifically tenable theory is that of evolution. Because, of course, in science we're not allowed to see God ever. But is that really the only tenable theory? There's a problem here. And the problem is, is that as we talk about speciation, as we talk about new species being generated, do you realize that we actually don't fully know what a species is? Now, I know that when you were in school, they gave you a definition. We're going to talk about that in a few moments. But the reality is, we're not exactly sure what differentiates one species from another. The concept of species was developed by Carolus Linnaeus in the 1700s, during the 18th century. The thing that we need to recognize about that is that there was not somebody who came down from the mountain with the concept of species etched in stone. It was one scientist who is observing the world who decided, hmm, it looks to me like maybe these animals are different in some way, and so I'm going to come up with some kind of system by which we can delineate and differentiate and tell the difference, and we'll talk about kingdom and phyla and species. There's actually not anything anywhere that tells us to divide all the creatures up into species. That's just man's way of observing the world. Linnaeus developed his way of dividing up species, and different scientists throughout time have, have used that and adopted that to fit within the evolutionary theory and with the, the framework of the general theory of evolution. Now, you've probably heard of a definition of species, and I want to share that with you. This quote comes from the Gale Encyclopedia of Science. The most widely accepted definition of a species is the biological species concept proposed by Ernst Mayer in the 1940s. By the way, I just want you to notice, Carolus Linnaeus came up with the idea of species back in the 1700s. This definition didn't get to us until the 1940s. So we see how it changes and it's, uh, things change. A species is a population of individual organisms that can interbreed in nature, mating and producing fertile offspring in a natural setting. Species are organisms that share the same gene pool and therefore genetic and morphological similarities. Those of you who remember your high school biology classes, does that sound about like what you heard? Now, my question for you is, in your textbook, did it say this? The most widely accepted definition? You see, that statement means something. That statement means that it is not a universally accepted definition. But there are scientists who do not accept this definition. In fact, Gale Science Encyclopedia goes on to tell us that currently 
The precise definition of a species is a topic under constant scientific debate and likely will never fully be resolved. Rather, the definition may change with the perspectives and needs of each subdiscipline within biology. Now, now there's a widely accepted definition. This is what we just most commonly say, but when we really get down to it and start trying to study species and the difference between them, actually we don't know. It's under scientific debate constantly. It probably will never fully be resolved. Now, this is my favorite. It may change with the perspectives and needs of each subdiscipline within biology. So, uh, depending on my subdiscipline within biology, I can use a different definition of species so that it will all fit in the theory that we have that we can't question. And that, of course, is the theory of evolution. And yet, I am the one who's called dishonest. I'm not sure exactly how that works. I want to share with you the actual confusion that exists regarding speciation. We hear stories as if all these scientists out here agree that this is the way it happened and we know how man got here. But the reality is even now, as different scientists look at the evidence that's out there, they don't agree about how this happened. They don't agree about what a species is or what the fossils say about species. In fact, I'd like to go back to that article by Jerry De Silva, and he talks about two lines of reasoning called lumpers and splitters. Lumpers see just a very few variations in species. Splitters see as many as they possibly can. He says, currently there are two modes of thought in categorizing human ancestors. The lumpers, who tend to group fossils into relatively few species, and the splitters, who use measurable differences as evidence for prolific speciation in our past. Each uses the same measurements, the same fossils, but interpret the results differently. I want to stop there, and I want to point something out to you. Interpret the results differently. They're looking at the same bones, the same fossils, that came from the same places. When they measure those bones, they're the same length. And yet they interpret what those results mean differently. And here's what I want you to gain from that. When they dig up a bone out of the ground, it does not come monogrammed with what kind of animal it is. It does not come with a tag on it saying how old it is, why it died, and what it looked like. It's a bone. And as different scientists look at the different bones, they tell different stories about those bones because those bones actually don't tell their own stories. De Silva goes on to tell us about Tim White, a professor of integrative biology at the University of California in Berkeley. He uses the variation that exists within a species today to understand the fossil record. This strategy has landed him within the lumper category. Right now, there's oversplitting going on by modern people inferring too many fossil species based on the differences they see between fossils. When the same differences are seen among skulls from a single modern species, for example, chimpanzees or gorillas or humans, says Dr. White. This is a good indication that naming many of the newer fossils as different species is not warranted. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the problem is when we take a look at modern chimpanzees and modern gorillas and modern humans, if we just laid out their skeletons, we'd see some pretty significant differences among them. And so when we go back and we find something that has a significant difference, that doesn't necessarily mean it was a different species. 
we cannot determine for sure that it is. And so he sees much, many fewer species. However, there's Ian Tattersall, regarded now as a splitter. He's the curator of the anthropology division. Making sure you got the right slide up so you can follow along. The curator of the anthropology division of the American Museum of Natural History in New York is influenced by his first research interest, lemurs. Fifty species of lemur reside on the island of Madagascar, and by looking only at their skeletons, one may be hard-pressed to find enough measurable differences to distinguish all 50 species. Fur color, ovulatory cycles, behavior patterns, communication methods, and genetics do not fossilize. Therefore, even the slightest difference in skeletal morphology might constitute evidence for a new species. Tattersall studied lemur taxonomy for many years and now sees the same diversity in the human fossil record. Of course, first of all, we get into the trouble. How are we certain that these different lemurs are different species? That's only based on certain definitions of species. And if we're going to start playing with that definition, we might not come up with as many species of lemurs as, as this guy does. That's, you know, they, they deal with, with that. How, how can they tell if it's a different species? And there's some struggles about that. But what he says is, we've got these 50 different species that we're agreeing on right now. And if you just lay out their bones, you can't really tell the difference. You wouldn't be able to look at one and say it's this kind of lemur versus that kind of lemur. And so, if we see even the slightest difference in the skeleton, that probably actually indicates a much bigger difference and then demonstrates a completely different species. And so he splits them into much a much larger number of species. But now here's the thing I want us to remember. Tim White, Ian Tattersall are looking at the same bones. Found in the same places. The thing I want you to notice, those bones didn't tell them what they really were. These men are trying to decide what they are. Because they don't know. They're speculating. They're postulating. They're hypothesizing. There's nothing wrong with that in the sense that we scientifically test things. But we need to understand, they haven't proven anything. De Silva sums up by saying, Tim White, a lumper, looks at the fossil record and sees variation within a few species. Ian, Ian Tattersall, a splitter, sees diversity and recognizes many different species. To highlight the difference, consider the following example. One million years from now, would a future paleontologist be able to tell that a seven-foot, two-inch basketball player like Shaquille O'Neal was a member of the same species as a five-foot-two-inch actor like Danny DeVito. If all we had was their skeletons that we found at different locations, would we know these guys are the same species? Tattersall would probably say, nope, they're different. White might say they're the same. What if they found Siamese twins? Or someone who had dwarfism? Or someone who has rickets? Would they be able to tell, here's the difference, or would they be able to know, these are all the same species? Or would they rather fit them into some type of evolutionary timeline? Because the bones don't tell us what they are. And so De Silva says, this is the challenge to a paleoanthropologist. Trying to decide whether a new fossil discovery represents a new species or a variant of an already recognized animal. Understand the admission here. When we look at the bones, we don't really know what we're looking at. Is it just an extinct species? Is it a variation on a species that we know of today? Did that creature give birth to another creature that was a different species? 
Was it given birth to by another creature that was a different species? We don't see any of that when we look at the bones. Now, the thing that I want you to recognize here, though, is not just that there's these differences, but actually that this is also being dealt with, I believe, in a very dishonest way as it's being taught to us and being taught to our kids. Jerry DeSilva tells us about some bones that were found in Kenya. It's called the KNMER 1470, discovered by Meebleke in 1972. It's called KNMER. KNM stands for Kenya National Museum. That's where the bones are right now. ER stands for East Rudolph Lake. That's where that comes from. And so uh, Meebleke found this. They studied it. They changed and revolutionized the way human evolution was understood. And now we understand that there was homo habilis. But somebody else looked at it a few years later, and they reconstructed it and looked at it differently. And they said, no, 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 this is something else. We're going to call it Homo rudolfensis. Then in 2001, Mee Bleeke, who originally found these bones, found another set of bones. And she called it, those bones, the Kenyanthropus platyops. And somebody else started looking at it and said, hey, wait a minute. These new bones that we found in 2001 are a lot like those bones we found in 1972. So that thing in 1972 reconstructed is no longer Homo habilis or Homo rudolfensis, but it's rather the Kenyanthropus rudolfensis. Now, I'd like you to hear what De Silva says about all this confusion. He says, so what is 1470? Some still say it's a Homo habilis. Some say it is a Homo rudolfensis. And now some call it a Kenyanthropus rudolfensis. This can be confusing to teachers and students alike, you think? Ultimately, though, the names do not matter. The creature that died and left what we call 1470 lived approximately 1.8 million years ago. No one argues that fact. That's not true, but no one that he will accept as being reputable argues that fact. Whether 1470 was a habilis or a rudolfensis should not be the focus in a classroom. As Tim White suggests, why confuse your students with this? Get them onto relationships and not names. Now just think about that statement for a minute. Don't confuse people with all the fact that we don't know what we're talking about. Don't confuse the fact that none of us really know what this thing is, and so we're arguing about it. Don't get them to think about all the different names. Just get them to know that we all believe it got here by evolution. Now, here's the thing. Names matter. Because what if one scientist came along and started studying this and reconstructed and said, oh, wait a minute, guys. This isn't a Kenyanthropus rudolfensis. This is a Pongo pygmius. Because a Pongo pygmius is a modern orangutan. You see, suddenly if we realize, wait a minute, this is something else. It does have a different name. We realize, oh, we were wrong. It's not something that evolved into a human. It's an orangutan. What if we looked at it and said, oh, you know what? This is actually just a homo sapien. It would change the whole picture. It would change the whole picture. So what are these bones? Are they variants of species we already know? Are they new species, old species, extinct species? What? We don't know. And the bones don't tell us those things. And instead, as someone like Gary DeSilva, by the way, his document was written for teachers of biology to teach them how to teach evolution to kids. And notice what he says. I'll get them confused with the fact that we don't know what these things mean. Just let them know that we all believe it's evolution, and let's start looking at these relationships. Our confusion doesn't matter. The fact that we can't agree on the evidence doesn't matter just as long as we don't question that it's evolution. Encyclopedia Britannica says, the fossil evidence of the Australopithecines, remember those are several million years ago, considered by some to be evolutionary ancestors of the humans, although I think... 
fewer and fewer believing that. Uh, that's, that gets changed. It gets confusing to me. The fossil evidence of the Australopithecines has been seen by some scholars as merely representing temporal stages within a single evolving hominid lineage, leading to Homo erectus and thence to Homo sapiens. Others have stressed the extent of the adaptive differences between various fossils and have suggested that there may have been two or even three lineages evolving in parallel, only one of which led to the later species of Homo. Whatever the details of their interpretations, however, most hominid paleontologists are agreed that the Australopithecines represent a link, direct or indirect, between the fossil apes and human beings. We look at these guys and we don't know if they led to humans or if they led to apes or if, they, or if maybe some of them led to humans and some of them led to apes. We just don't know. But here's the thing. Don't worry about it. We all believe it happened by evolution and it's somehow connected to us. Here's what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And down in verse 21, so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then in verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. What the Bible says is God created each kind and the kinds produced after themselves. The kind produced kind. Now, we don't exactly know what those kinds are. God didn't say, here's what the kind is and here's how you can tell the difference. What he did say is kind produces kind. And you know what we observe? What we scientifically observe? Dogs give birth to dogs. Cats give birth to cats. Orange trees produce oranges. Humans give birth to humans. Not one single solitary time has anyone ever seen one species give birth to another species. It's not ever happened. None of the fossils demonstrate that. In fact, fossils can't demonstrate that. Now, one of the problems with the fossils is, like we've said, fossils don't tell a story. We have to tell stories about fossils. And no matter what fossil we find, for all we know, God just created a kind just like that. But I'll tell you what we've observed. We've observed what the Bible says, not what science is telling us. Even scientists who have worked with rapidly regenerating, they, they find variations. They find moths that may become white and moths that may become black. And they find birds that still get longer and get shorter. But guess what they are? Still moths, still birds, still fruit flies. Maybe they've created one that's got 25 legs, still just a fruit fly. We've not ever seen one single solitary time the evolutionary claim that one species gives rise to another. It hasn't happened one single time. Scientific observation says kind produces kind. And we don't have any evidence that says that what the Bible says about that is wrong. Not a bit. What about man? The descent of man. Here's where the rubber really meets the road on this issue. Probably you remember hearing all kinds of interesting names like Australopithecine, Neanderthal, Cro-Magnon. The thing that we need to recognize is that when you pick up your National Geographic magazine and when you see your discovery and uh, different 
films that they have about this documentary. We need to understand that when scientists find fossils, they find bones, they find skeletons. They don't find ears, and they don't find hair, and they don't find noses. They don't find muscles, and they don't find ovulatory, they don't find reproductive organs. They don't find any of that. They find bones. And so all those pictures that we see, that's not what people find. That's what scientists speculate they might have looked like as they project from the fragments that they find. The Gale Encyclopedia of Science once again says, evolutionary change occurs as a result of mutation, migration, genetic drift, and natural selection. It is ultimately a passive process, devoid of any purpose or goal. As a scientific theory, it is interconnected series of statements corroborated by a large body of evidence. Thus, biologists accept the historical reality of evolution as a fact, even though the details of how it works are still being investigated. We don't know how it works, but we accept it because there's a large body of evidence. That's an interesting admission. If we don't know how it works, how can we be sure it works that way? But never fear. We all accept that it was just by evolution. Encyclopedia Americana goes on to say, the theory of evolution serves as the underlying assumption of every biological science and as such represents the field's greatest unifying theme. Now let's be fair. This text is not saying that scientists have assumed evolution. Most scientists really believe the evidence teaches evolution. So I, I want to be very clear, I'm not saying that. But what this does tell us is that as scientists study and discover new things, as they find new evidences, what have they already assumed at this point? What is the underlying assumption of all their sciences now? Evolution. And so now as we see things, what do we do? We interpret it based on evolution. It's the great assumption that we all follow. It's no wonder that someone like Richard Dawkins in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, says, the theory of evolution by cumulative natural selection is the only theory we know of that is in principle capable of explaining the existence of organized complexity. Even if the evidence did not favor it, it would still be the best theory available. You see that? Even if the evidence didn't favor it, he says, it would be the best theory. Now, what if I said, as a creationist, that even if the evidence doesn't favor biblical creation, it's still the best theory? What if I said that? I would be castigated as a fundamentalist, not job. In fact, Richard Dawkins ought to be ashamed of himself, because in The God Delusion, page 19, he describes the difference between himself and a fundamentalist Christian. Fundamentalists know what they believe, and they know that nothing will change their minds. The quotation from Kurt Wise on page 323 says it all. If all the evidence in the universe turns against creationism, I would be the first to admit it, but I would still be a creationist because that is what the Word of God seems to indicate. Here I must stand. It is impossible to overstress the difference between such a passionate commitment to biblical fundamentals and the true scientist's equally passionate commitment to evidence. The fundamentalist Kurt Wise proclaims that all the evidence in the universe wouldn't change his mind. The true scientist knows exactly what it would take to change his mind. Evidence. And yet the supposed true scientist says, even if the evidence was against it, I'd still think it was the best theory. Now, when he says it, it's good science. When somebody who believes in creation says it, he's a nut job. Fundamentalist wacko. I just think that's interesting. 
Now, the reality is what Kurt Wise said is he knows exactly what it would take to change his mind, too. It would take the Bible. And therein lies the difference. I'd like you to consider a statement from a documentary from becominghuman.org under their exhibition on evolution and under the lineages heading. It says, some critics of evolutionary theory claim that scientists disagree about the concept of evolution. This is not the case. And they're right. Some critics say that because that's what I'm saying. I'm saying, look, they disagree about it. They, no, it's not the case. We don't disagree. While they may disagree over the details of the ways in which the process unfolds, scientists do not question the existence of evolution. And did you catch that? Scientists do not question the existence of evolution. I thought science was all about questioning things. But we won't question the existence of evolution. We read everything to say that it's still evolution. Now, we don't know how it happened, and we really don't know how man evolved, and we've got all these bones, and we're not sure how they all fit together. But that's okay. We all believe evolution. And as long as you believe evolution, as long as you don't question evolution, you're all right. Don't question evolution. Now, as we talk about the descent of man, I could do what you've seen done before. This would be a time when I could talk to you about all the things that have been proven wrong and, and the mix-ups and the mess-ups we've made, like Piltdown Man, discovered in 1912. And for 41 years, they thought this compilation of an orangutan jaw and chimpanzee teeth and a modern human skull that was just, uh, affected by an ion solution of chromic acid was the missing link, was part of our evolutionary ancestry. But about 41 years later, it was demonstrated to be a hoax. And, of course, you've heard about Nebraska man discovered in 1922. Actually, a man wasn't discovered. A tooth was discovered. And five years later, it was demonstrated that it was not a human tooth, a hominid tooth. It was a pig tooth. And then, of course, there's KNMER 1470 that we've already talked about in 1972, discovered by Neve Leakey and constructed one way and then reconstructed later because, oh, wait a minute, uh, we're all wrong about that. Or we could talk about Neanderthals, our evolutionary ancestry. Anybody remember Neanderthals from high school? Yeah, of course. Um, Neanderthals, we now know, supposedly, are just modern man, probably with rickets. They're now recognized just as homo sapiens, not a part of evolution at all. But instead of going through an entire list like this, I just want to demonstrate to you the real heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is, while it is being pounded on us, that, oh, science has figured out the way all this happened. Science has not. Scientists don't know. Now, they won't question evolution, but they don't know how it happened. They don't know how one thing evolved to another. They can't even put it in an order and be sure that's the way it went. If different people look at the order, they say, no, 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 that's all wrong. It's different. They don't know. In fact, I'd like to just give you some quotes from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Hence, the details of hominid origins remain unknown and the subject of lively debate and substantial speculation. Not fact, substantial speculation. It also says, in the absence of fossil records, structural and other adaptations have been projected back as an ancestral condition from living descendant species. But this is a very risky procedure. Because if we're going to project and speculate, we may be wrong. It also says the recognition and suitable definition of the genus Homo and its initial representatives has been a persistently troublesome problem. Notice this. There have been no formal diagnoses. Did you know that? As you've seen the National Geographic and the Discovery documentaries, did you know they've actually not made any formal diagnoses of these things? Or at least they hadn't at this time. 
Oh, no, we're told over and over again. We figured it out. We've got the answers. We know how it happened. Jerry De Silva says, many hominid species once existed, but today only one remains, us. How did this happen? Again, it depends on whom you ask. Tim White, Ian Cattersall, and Neve Leakey's phylogenies, or family trees, all differ, even though their interpretations are based on the same measurements, using the same equipment, the same units, and the same well-aged fossils. These phylogenies are working hypotheses designed to be tested and scrutinized while flexible enough to be changed when new evidence is found. For students, the lesson from these family trees should not be the lines themselves, but why scientists draw the relationships they do and why they disagree. Did you catch that last statement there? Don't worry that these scientists are always telling you that they know the facts, but at the same time they can't agree on the facts. Just hone in on the fact that they all believe it's evolution. That's how you teach it. Remember, this document is written to teach teachers how to teach kids evolution. Don't worry about the fact that they don't know what's happening. Don't worry about the fact that they disagree about what it all means. Don't worry about the fact that that demonstrates that they don't know what these bones really say. Just teach the fact that they all believe it's evolution, and that's what you need to believe. He goes on to say, and this is one of my favorites, but textbooks do not communicate the excitement and debate generated by new discoveries. Textbooks do not communicate the excitement and debate generated by new discoveries. The typical linear representations of our evolutionary history are not only incorrect, they are boring. Now, we all knew that part. Using the model we propose, students have an opportunity to explore a science with more questions than answers without having to memorize oversimplified versions of human ancestry. You all see this part right here? The typical linear representations of our evolutionary history are incorrect. Everybody who's in high school right now looking at a textbook, I just want you to notice what this evolutionist says. That linear thing that you're seeing in your textbook is not only boring, I know you knew that, it is also incorrect. That is not the way it really is. This is an atheist saying this. This is not a Christian. This is not a creationist. This is an atheist evolutionist telling you that what you get in your textbooks is not correct. And so he says, don't teach it that way. Have debate about these new discoveries, but above all, make sure we understand it's all evolution. Although there are thousands of fossils of human ancestors, the exact relationship between each of these specimens has yet to be determined. Now, I want you to notice that. The exact relationship between these specimens has yet to be determined. you know what that means? They cannot determine if one led to another. They cannot determine if one evolved into another. We haven't determined that yet. We don't know what they are. Scientists present competing hypotheses and test which may be correct. Here we present three current equally valid hypotheses of the hominid family tree. And I know y'all can't really see this, but I just, uh, over here is the one by Leakey. This is the one by White, who was the lumper. And notice there's kind of a straight line and very few divisions. Here's Tattersall, who was the splitter. And notice it splits off very quickly, and there's lots of differences there. But these are equally valid. Why can these be equally valid? Because we don't know what the truth of the matter is, is what they're telling us. If they knew how it happened, you couldn't have three completely different ones be equally valid. Understand what that admits. Recognizing the uncertainty of their interpretation, both Ian Tattersall and Tim White use dotted lines instead of solid lines in their family trees. Neve Leakey takes this caution a step further and does not even use lines. She draws circles around related species. 
The species, this is her quote, this is me Lisa's comment here. The species enclosed in the ellipses are those that share features that appear to link them. I do suggest relationships, but I do not give such detailed relationships as those who draw lines because I believe the lines imply what, that we know more about how things are related than we actually do. We will never know exactly how any species relates to another unless by some amazing good fortune we are ever able to extract DNA from those fossils. We'll never know whether or not all that happened by evolution. Guys, that's, a, that's an evolutionary scientist saying that, saying that really we don't know. We don't know if these things are even related at all. But we see some similarities. We put them in this thing. We think they're related. And then we pass it off. But it's okay as long as you don't question evolution. Genesis 2.7 says, Then the Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Genesis 2.19 says, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. That's what the Bible says. Has evolutionary science provided us with anything that says that's not possible, that's not true? No, it hasn't. We've got a lot of bones that are not labeled, that do not tell us how they are related to one another, but we've got a lot of scientists who start with the presumption that we can't have God. It has to be some natural means. It has to be a rational cause. It can't be a supernatural cause. And so we're going to place these things together, all the while admitting we don't know if we're right. And then they rebuke us as if we won't just accept plain facts that's been proven. But there has been nothing that has said that what God said about the matter is wrong. I appreciate your patience, and I've just got one more thing that I need to share with you. I should have had Rusty stop a little bit sooner. But I was afraid. You saw how he treated me when I only asked for five minutes. I want you to understand the difference between fact and story. And I'd like for you to look at Genesis 37 just quickly. And I know this may seem like we're going off on a rabbit chase, but hopefully you'll understand when we're done with this. In Genesis chapter 37, verse 31. Jacob's sons brought Joseph's robe to Jacob. They took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph, without doubt, is torn to pieces. I want you to notice the difference between the facts that Jacob had and the story that Jacob told. As far as Jacob knew, there were two facts. Here was his son's coat. It was his son's coat. And there was blood on that coat. That's it. But then Jacob told a story to try to explain what those facts meant. He told a story. He said, oh, this is what this means. Here's the evidence. Here's the facts. There's a coat with blood on it. It's my son's coat. It must be that a wild animal tore him to bits. There's only one problem with it. You know, that's a reasonable story. That's the story that the brothers wanted him to believe. That's, they saw it as a reasonable explanation of that evidence, too. Of course, they had different facts, and they knew better. What we need to understand is there is a difference between facts and the stories we tell about the facts. Jacob so believed his story and believed it was factual that years later, when his sons came to him and said, hey, we found Joseph in Egypt, he said, it's not true. I saw his coat covered in blood. And they had to convince him. 
see, the thing is, there are facts. And the facts are that there's lots of bones all over the world. The facts are, those creatures died and left those bones someplace. But equally, the facts are, those bones don't come labeled. They don't tell us what they were. They don't tell us how they're related to anything else. Rather, we tell stories about those bones. Some scientists tell a story that says progressive change from simple to complex. Some of us tell a story that says God created all those creatures and they reproduced after their kind and they just all died. But we need to understand there's a difference between facts. See, evolution is not a fact. Evolution is a story that some folks tell about the bones and things that they found. To be fair, creation is not a scientifically a fact. It is also a story that some folks tell. The thing is, some, t- some stories are right and some are wrong. All I want us to see is that despite what we're told about human evolution, there actually isn't all this evidence that says it had to happen this way. There's just a bunch of people guessing about what those bones mean. And when we start guessing about what they mean, we're telling a story. And every once in a while, you can find an evolution who will, evolution, evolutionist who will admit this. In the preface of W.R. Bird's Origin of the Species Revisited, we have a quote from an evolutionist, Dr. Garrett J. Nelson. He says, all facts fit all theories. That is a fact of life. Facts fit some theories better than other theories, and that is another fact of life. One which enables science to progress when a better theory is created by the human spirit. The book, now he's talking about the origin of species revisited, which, by the way, is a critique of evolution, as this will go on to say. The book has virtue as a criticism of evolutionary theory. It has virtue even though its criticism is loaded like the proverbial pair of dice. Indeed, when Mr. Bird rolls for evolutionary theory, who would expect anything but snake eyes to come up? Still, he rolls the dice with style. He rolls them over and over again with the same result. Mr. Bird is concerned with origins and the evidence relevant there, too. I've shown you this part of it just to say that this is not a converted evolutionist. This is not a guy who read the book and decided, oh, uh, I've, I've been wrong all this time. He's still an evolutionist as he's writing this preface. But notice what he says. As Gareth Nelson talks about Bird, the author of Origin of Species Revisited, he is basically correct that evidence or proof of origin of the universe, of life, of all the major groups of life, of all the minor groups of life, indeed of all the species, is weak or non-existent when measured on an absolute scale, as it always was and will always be. He is correct also that what evidence there is is sometimes, even often, exaggerated by evolutionists. Yes, they load their own dice, for they too are human. They too play to the gallery, to the jury, and to the judges. Were they entirely wise rather than adversarial, they would never claim to have done the impossible to prove the correctness of their views by offering evidence of the origin of things. They weren't adversarial, but they were just honest. They'd admit they hadn't proven anything. Instead, what they do is they get mad at us when we try to say, y'all haven't proven anything, it's just a theory. Oh, no, I mean, there's videos online about, oh, that's a bunch of hogwash, they don't know what they're talking about, but here's an evolutionist that admits it. We haven't proven anything. We have stories that we tell about these things. And we test them, and, and that's fine. It's good to test them. That's great. But let's be honest about where we are. There's not anything that's proven human evolution at all. And so, creation or evolution, I can't make that choice for you. You have to look at the evidence and determine which story you're going to accept. But I know for me, Creation is the one I believe. I believe that kind reproduces after kind, just like the Bible said. That's what I've seen. 
That's what everybody's seen. Nobody's seen anything different. And I haven't seen anything in the fossil record that says that it happened any other way than this. I've just seen a bunch of people that tell that story. 